بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على سيدنا ومولانا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما وفقها في الدين يا رب العالمين أما بعد الحمد لله this is lesson 6 if I'm not mistaken in the tafsir of surah al-kahf and inshallah today we want to look at the tafsir of verses 32 to 44. In the last couple of sessions we were looking at the story of the Ashab al-Kahf and then in the most recent class we looked at the ayat that came immediately after the story of the young men in the cave where Allah Ta'ala gave certain commands to the Prophet ﷺ, telling him to recite the verses of Allah to his people and to be patient with those who call upon Allah in the morning and the evening. And after that segment, we come to the next theme, which is contained in verses 32 to 44. And this is another story. So let's look at the structure of the chapter so far and how it follows after this story. In the beginning of Surah Al-Kahf, we have the opening theme, Alhamdulillahi alladhi anzala ala abdihin kitaba wa lam iwaja. After that opening theme, we have the first story in the chapter, the story of the Ashab Al-Kahf, the young men in the cave. After that first story comes another theme, which we looked at last week. That theme being certain commands given to the Prophet ﷺ. After that theme comes the second story of the chapter, the story we're looking at today, and that is the story of the two men, the poor man and the one with the two gardens. After that story comes the next theme, which is about parables, amthal, examples. And then after that comes the third story of the chapter, which is the story of Sayyidina Musa salam and Khidr. After that comes the next segment, which is another story, the fourth story of the chapter, the story of Dhul Qarnayn. And then the chapter closes with three sets of themes. So we see that you, you tend to have a, a general theme followed by a story. Then another general theme followed by a story. Except at the end where you have the third and the fourth stories back to back. So we're at the second story of this chapter out of the four stories contained. And this theme in verse, verses 32 to 44 presents us the story of two men. And when we look in the tafsir, we see that there's a lot of back and forth discussion among the scholars of tafsir about the identity of these two men. Who were they? Were, did they even exist? That discussion is there too. And if they existed, who were they? And what was going on in the background? Lots of details. But when we look at the chapter itself, we don't see background details. We don't see the backstory. 
We don't see any of those things in the story itself. We just see the absolute essential message contained in the experience between these two individuals. And that's something we see throughout the Qur'an in the many stories that Allah Ta'ala relates in His book. He relates the essential message, the essential themes, and does not go into uh, a lot of copious detail or background information that you find in the tafsir. Because those things are not that important. They're not that essential. If we take a look at our most recent example, the story of the young men in the cave. You see, between the story mentioned in the Qur'an and the details in the tafsir literature, there's a huge difference. There's a lot of details in the the tafsir literature that are not mentioned in the Qur'an. And there's no need for that detail. So let's look at this verse by verse and get a sense of the background. We begin with verse 32. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَضُرِبْ لَهُمْ مَثَلًا رَجُلَيْنِ جَعَلْنَا لِأَحَدِهِمَا جَنَّتَيْنِ مِنْ أَعْنَابٍ وَحَفَفْنَاهُمَا بِنَخْلٍ وَجَعَلْنَا بَيْنَهُمْ بَيْنَهُمَا زَرْعًا Allah Ta'ala says, and cite for them the parable of two men. To one of them, we gave two gardens of vine, here it's referring to grapes, and we surrounded them with palm trees, and we placed between them crops. So this is the basic translation, we want to expound on this. So Allah Ta'ala begins this segment of the chapter by commanding the Prophet ﷺ again. The previous verses were commands, right? This is another command. وَضُرِبْ لَهُمْ Which means to cite for them a parable. ضَرْبُ amthal, The citing of parables, the striking of similitudes. This is one of the common features in the Holy Qur'an the striking of similitudes, the citing of parables. And this is a common feature because it's a powerful method of teaching, because it takes lessons and explains them in a story format or in common everyday examples that are readily digestible to people. So you could talk about a very high spiritual or metaphysical theological concept and by putting it in a parable, you can make it digestible to the everyday person. Instead of explaining it in a very lengthy, formal, structured argument, you can just mention a story that delivers the exact same message. And the fact that Allah Ta'ala commands the Prophet to cite the parable of the two men, we have this difference of opinion among the scholars of tafsir. Were these actually two living, breathing human beings that have a history? Were these two men in history? Or are they just parables of two types of people and two types of attitudes? You have some of the scholars of tafsir who say that these two people did not actually exist at all. And the whole story is a method, it's a parable. So it's describing lessons, but in a story format. 
The other opinion, of course, is that these were two actual human beings who existed in history. And this seems to be the majority position, that these were actual human beings. And when we look in the tafsir, we see that the scholars differed about their exact identity. Who were they? We have the dominant view found in most of the tafsir works, which says that these were two brothers. And these two brothers were from Bani Israel, one of whom was a believer and the other was a disbeliever. It said in these Israeliyat narrations that these two brothers had a father who passed away and he left behind for them 8,000 dinar. They inherited 8,000 dinar and they had no siblings, so it was divided into two, 4,000 dinar each. So the believer of the two brothers, we'll call him person B, B for believer, he received 4,000, and the other brother, whom we'll call person D for disbeliever, he inherited 4,000. Person D, the disbeliever, said, uh, he bought some land, and person B, the believer, said, Oh Allah, I wish to purchase a plot of Jannah from you for 1,000 dinar. And he gave 1,000 dinar of the 4,000 in charity. Brother D, the disbeliever, built a house for 1,000. So brother D bought a plot of land for 1,000. Brother B donated a thousand. Brother D, the disbeliever, built a house for a thousand dinar. And Brother B, the believer, said, Oh Allah, I wish to purchase a home in Jannah from you for a thousand. And he gave another thousand in charity. Brother D, the disbeliever, got married. Does anyone want to guess how much he paid in Mahar? One thousand. And Brother B, the believer, said, Oh Allah, I wish to purchase a, I'm sorry, I wish to give a thousand as mahar, dowry, for a maiden of paradise. And he gave it away in charity. How much money is left? They both have a thousand each. The story says that Brother D, the disbeliever, bought khudam, servants, you could say slaves too, for a thousand dinar. And Brother B, the believer, said, Oh Allah, I wish to purchase from, uh, from you uh, servants in Jannah. If, you know, instead of khuddam in dunya, I'll have khuddam in the afterlife. And he gave a thousand in charity. How much money does Brother B, the believer, have left? Zero. Brother D, the disbeliever, he spent his money as well. He bought a plot of land, he bought a house, he bought servants, he got married. So he spent the money, but he also invested it in that land, in that house. So some time went by. The story mentions that some time went by and the believer, he fell on hard times and he was in need. He went to his brother, the disbeliever, and the brother kicked him out and condemned him for spending all the money he inherited as charity. 
This is the story you find in many of the tafsir works. And note that this is not talking about the fiqh of spending all of your money in charity. This is a story from Bani Israel. They have a different fiqh from us. And at the end of the day, we don't see anything indicating that Brother B, the believer, had dependence. So it's not as if him spending all of his money would have led others in his family to be destitute and in need. Only he suffered as a result of this. He goes to his brother and his brother basically kicks him out and blames him for spending all his money in charity. That's the gist of the story, or at least the introduction to who they were. That's one view. And this is based on some, some of the Israeliyat, the narrations that come from Bani Israel. There are some, there's another opinion which says that these two brothers were real life brothers, but they were not from Bani Israel. They were actually from Mecca. They were actually from Mecca, and they were two brothers from the Makhzumi tribe in Mecca. The believer was none other than Sayyiduna Abu Salama radiallahu anhu, Abdullah ibn Abdul Asad, who is the, or was the, husband of Um Salama. He passed away, remember, and she married the Prophet sallallahu So this is Abu Salama, the believer. And it says that the disbeliever was his brother, Aswad ibn Abdul Asad. So uh, they say that this is a story about the two of them and what happened with them. Some say it was these two brothers from Bani Israel and others again say it's not a story of an actual past event from real life people, but it is a similitude. It is a methal. So a methal is a likeness. It's an example or a parable. So if we say it's a likeness or a parable, uh, who does brother, a, brother B, the believer, represent? And who does brother D, the disbeliever, represent? Well, the scholars of Tafsir say that if this is a parable and not uh, a real-life event in history, brother B in the parable represents the Prophet ﷺ. And brother D in the parable represents the attitude of his people, Quraysh. Because they had that kind of attitude of thinking that their wealth sufficed them from Allah and the hereafter. They thought that that was the measure of truth and we see as the story unfolds. So, if we say that the story is about two brothers and it's not just a parable, it actually teaches us something very important. Because let's go back to the very first class. We mentioned in the cause of revelation, the narration of how Quraysh went. They sent two people to, to Yathrib, as it was known back then, to speak to some of the rabbis and receive questions to give as a challenge to the Prophet One of the questions was about the Ashabul Kahf, the young men in the cave. So if we assume that this was an actual story in history, we learn something very important. 
Because when the Prophet ﷺ receives the wahi from Allah about the young men in the cave, he answers that question. And then shortly after that, Allah reveals this story. They didn't ask about this story. But Allah still revealed the story, not shortly after the story of the young men in the cave. And the lesson is that sometimes when people ask you something, you should give them the direct answer and also give them other things that they need based on what you know of them. Right? Sometimes people will ask me a question and I have a sense of what they're looking for and where they are. I could answer the question directly and leave it at that, but I know that there's something else back there that needs to be addressed as well. So I'll answer the question and I'll add to it something else that they need to know. And that is a way of teaching that you don't just answer the question and leave it at that, you also provide other information that they need. And we see this in the story of these two men. So going back to the verse and establishing the identity of these two people, we take the view that these were actually human beings. Uh, more than likely they were from Bani Israel. Allah Ta'ala says, cite the parable for them the parable of the two of two men to one of them we gave two gardens of vine as it says here in the translation we could say grapes and we surrounded them with palm trees and we placed them between crops so let's explore this allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying that he made a garden for one of them in fact he says two gardens Jannataini, two gardens. And after mentioning these two gardens, Allah gives it about six or seven descriptions in this verse and the next verses. So he mentions that it is a Jannah. Now we call a garden a Jannah, and heaven or paradise is called Jannah. And the reason why is because words in Arabic that are on the root of jim noon noon right you merge the two noons jannah uh, words on this trilateral root tend to have the meaning of hiddenness or something that is concealed or obscured from vision uh, not readily seen like what are some words you know that come on that pattern Jinn, you don't see them, right? Jinni, let's say. Oh, jinin, right, the, the fetus is jinin. You don't see it. It's in the womb. It's hidden. Uh, likewise, uh, Junnah, the Prophet ﷺ says, As-Suyamu, Junnah. Fasting is a shield. A Junnah is a shield because it conceals you from, or it hides you from the blows. Uh, Jannah is a garden now what's a garden right what makes the, what makes a garden different from plants fruits and vegetables growing in a forest or a jungle yeah th there's some kind of boundary that that demarks it from an open area it's planned right well riyadh riyadh you know the word riyadh is a garden you know as well and that's one of the beauties about jannah is that it's a garden, but it's not just a wild forest-like creation. 
it's actually something that's planned, right? And it's the, it's the product of your state in this world, right? So it's a Jannah, it's, uh, it's concealed. So in this verse, it's telling us that it's concealed. It's concealed with shade, it's concealed with walls. It could also be concealed by those palm trees that are surrounding it. So they're growing up all around the two gardens, covering them, shielding them, shading them. They're not ready, it's not readily visible from the outside, outside of the boundary of those trees. So this is the first description. So we get this picture in our mind of this very large garden. It's actually two gardens contained in a large enclosure, but that enclosure isn't necessarily a wall surrounding it, but it's an enclosure of date palm trees. So even the thing that blocks it off from everything else is something that provides fruit, date palm trees. So they're providing shade, they're blocking it off from the other areas, and they provide fruit on their own. So this is the first description we get. After that, Allah Ta'ala mentions that it was filled with grapes, and that it was surrounded by date palms. And he says, we place between them crops. We place crops between them, meaning between these two gardens. So we understand from this, as the scholars of Tafsir say, that this land grew multiple crops, which means it was very expansive, and planted in such a way that there was not large gaps between the open areas. So you have to picture this as a really large garden surrounded by date palm trees. There's two gardens and they're filled with various crops and there's not so much space between them that you have large swaths of area without fruit or vegetables. It's just packed with crops, packed with uh, grapes, packed with date palm trees and he's harvesting these things and making a lot of money from it. And because Allah Ta'ala says zara'a without specifying, first it's grapes, then it's surrounded by date palm trees, but in between those, Allah says zara'a, it's, it's, it's indefinite, it's, it's ambiguous, it doesn't specify what crops there were. And the scholars say that from this indefiniteness, we understand that there was always something there. It was so diverse that when one crop was out of season, another one is in season. So he's always out there harvesting. There's something for the summer, there's something for the fall, there's something for the, you know, the, the late fall, there's something in the spring. There's always something going on there. So, so is, could be any, any crop. Any crop. This translation says cornfields, not accurate. Then. No, that's not the translation we're using. Okay. Yeah. Zara'a is basically crops in an ambiguous way. Yeah, so we, we get the impression that when one crop was harvested, another one, uh, and then it was out of season, another one was coming into season, and so on. So he's constantly deriving profit from these crops, multiple things. It's not just one seasonal crop, and then he's off the rest of the, the, rest of the season. So these are two gardens, yet they're filled with a variety of things, most, mostly grapes, and then you have the date palms surrounding it. 
And there's a reason why Allah mentions grapes and dates, why they're paired. We'll see that soon. After this, Allah Ta'ala says, both gardens produced their harvest in full and suffered no loss. Meaning he did not suffer any naqs, any uh, loss or deficiency. So this is the, you could say it's the fourth description of the garden. The fifth description and we made a river flow through them. So this means that the river flowed between these two gardens. It wasn't out of the way that required more labor. It was actually going right through that plot of land that had these two gardens, which are filled with a variety of crops, majority grapes, but also surrounded by date palm trees producing dates. There's a lot of money in this. So that's the fifth description. And then Allah gives the sixth description by saying, وَكَانَ لَهُ ثَمَرٌ And thus he had abundant thamar. Thamar is fruits. However, we've established that there were grapes, and we established that there were dates. And we call both of those fruits, don't we? So that's true. But there's also zara'a, there's other varieties as well. But the word thamar here doesn't just mean fruits. We already know it's fruit. Allah already says grapes and dates. So why would thamar here mean fruit when we already know it's fruit? Well, the answer is that thamar doesn't just mean fruit. The ulama of tafsir mention that yes, thamar can mean fruit, but it can also mean profit or gain or wealth, right? Mujahid, the great early Mufassir, he says that thamar here is al-dhahab wal-fidda, gold and silver. So, yeah, this means that not only did he have a prime piece of real estate and a fertile garden, with a river running in between the gardens with lots of grapes, lots of dates, and other crops that are seasonal. He also had lots of gold and lots of silver. And let's not forget he invested his money into a nice house, and he paid mahar, and he got married, and he had servants. If you have servants, people working for you, they're working on the garden, you have to feed them as well. You have to take care of them as well. All of these require expenditures. So he's a very wealthy man at this stage. When we go to the first verse in this story, we see Allah describes the garden as one filled with a'nab, grapes, and surrounded by date palm trees. Those are the two specific fruits mentioned in the story. The other crops are left ambiguous. So there's a significance here. Why doesn't Allah Ta'ala mention the other crops by name? Why doesn't he mention what they were? Why does he only mention grapes specifically and date palm trees with dates specifically? And the answer is that these are frequently paired in the Quran because these two crops 
grapes and dates were incredibly common in the region of Hijaz. They were very common in the Hijaz. They're even common outside of the Hijaz in the south and in the Yemen. Uh, even in, in my days in, in Yemen, where I was studying, one of the main crops produced were grapes. Grapes. So you'd have grapes and raisins and all sorts of things from grapes produced. It was just a fertile soil suitable for grapes because it was not so hot. It was in a more mountainous area, so it was cool enough where they would grow. And then, of course, dates, right? So grapes and dates are uh, often uh, repeated together in the Qur'an. And these are two crops very common and known to the people of Hijaz, as opposed to other crops in the area of Sham that might not have been as familiar to the people of Quraysh in Mecca. So Allah is mentioning the two crops that are very familiar to the people of Mecca. Uh, likewise, we look at the nature of the foods from an energetic perspective, from the Hikmah Yunaniya perspective, Grapes are dry and moist energetically, or they're cool and moist. And ripe dates are dry and warm. So they're actually, they combine perfectly. So you take grapes, so energetically we mean. If you look at uh, the hadith in the Shama'il that describes the Prophet ﷺ eating together cucumbers and dates. Those dates were the rutab, the, the, the ripe dates, the yellowish ones. If you've had those, you know that they are, they're warm, they have, a, they have a heat to them, and they're also very dry. And the cucumber is cool and moist, cool as a cucumber, right? So when you combine the cool and the moist with the hot and the dry together in a single meal, you have a very balanced meal, energetically speaking, right? And people who tend to be dealing with physical conditions or constitutions that are tending to be hot and dry, they can balance that out by eating things that are cool and moist. And if they tend to be cool and moist, they can balance that out by eating things that are hot and dry. The point is grapes are... Uh, cool and moist and dates are hot and dry. So the two are combined in this, in this story. So after mentioning the fact that this individual had this vast garden with these crops, and after mentioning the description of the garden, Allah then says, فَقَالَ لِصَاحِبِهِ وَهُوَ يُحَاوِرُهُ he said to his sahib, so sahib means, you could say friend or companion. He said to his sahib, as he conversed with him, I am wealthier than you and greater in manpower. So what is he doing? He's just bragging. He's just boasting. It's very common for people to come into wealth and luxury and get corrupted by them and to use them to boast over others and assert their superiority. Wealth sometimes causes people to become so unbalanced that they lose sight of reality. They forget that 
the wealth, the power, the prestige, the privilege they have are not intrinsic to who they are, but rather these things can be taken away from them at any moment. They begin to think that these are a part of their essential identity. So he says, Ana akhtaru minka malan. Okay, that's true. He does have more money. Wa And I have greater manpower because I have resources, I have servants. So it's actually a true statement. But it's said with an attitude of boasting and with the implicit belief that this makes him intrinsically better as if it's something essential to his identity. Was he always more wealthier than his brother? No. Did he always have greater manpower? No, he came into that, right? Now, this was not a one-sided conversation. You know those one-sided conversations where one person's talking and the other one doesn't get a chance to get a word in edgewise? This was not such a conversation. It was not one-sided. It was a back and forth between the two of them. We call it a dialogue. And the word used here is hiwar. In Arabic, hiwar means a dialogue or a discourse where the two sides basically get equal time to say what they want to say. So this is a dialogue between the disbeliever and the believer, the two brothers. So the believing brother wanted to exhort him to Iman and called him to Iman and belief in the next life and his brother, the disbeliever, wanted to brag and boast. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives us here the outline of that conversation and what happened after the conversation. And that becomes the parable for understanding the essential message of the Prophet sallallahu and the response of Quraysh to that message. So we said that some scholars said this was a parable that wasn't an actual event in history. That's a more minority view. We say it's an actual event in history. These were two actual people. Nevertheless, their story represents two archetypes, two types of people, one of which is represented in the person of the Prophet and the other in the response of Quraysh as a collective. So Allah gives us the outline of this conversation. And it's very brief when you read the ayat because Allah gives us the essential message of each side. If we were to look at the tafsir and look at the verses and reconstruct a conversation, it would probably look like this. The believing brother, remember he was falling on hard times and he went to the brother's house and asked for some material assistance. The brother kicked him out and admonished him and blamed him for spending all his money in charity. And now we have this conversation of him bragging and boasting about how much money he has, how much manpower he has. The believing brother reminds his disbelieving brother about belief in Allah and the purpose of existence and Allah's power and his attributes of lordship and his creating and providing everything that they have, reminding that whatever he has is from Allah and it's not from him independently, that whatever he has was not created by him, it was created by his Lord. And the one who gave him all of this is also going to cause him to die 
And the one who gave him all of this can also take it away just as quickly. So he's reminding him of all of these things in his dialogue. The disbelieving brother, if we reconstruct his conversation, he is basically saying, all that you are professing to believe in, all that you're calling me to, hasn't brought you any wealth or power. It hasn't brought you any children or influence in society. So if what you were calling me to was true, Allah would have given you all the things he's given me. So basically he's saying, if, that, if, if belief in Allah in the last day is true, then why aren't you wealthy like me? It's reducing religion to a prosperity gospel. The idea that the true measure of religion is how much worldly success it gives you. And if you don't have that worldly success, then it, as a measure of truth, it means you're not actually on the truth. And this is a very common attitude among many people. They say, well, you know, if you are on the truth, why are you tested? If you are on the truth, why are you poor? If you are on the truth, why are you struggling financially? You know, meanwhile, they live lives of great wealth and they're heedless of Allah and they see no loss. They see an increase and they think that that means they must be doing something right. Therefore, they're favored by Allah. That's the basic attitude. It's like the brother is saying, I use my intelligence. I receive the 4,000 dinars and I invested in them and I became wealthier than you. I became more honored than you, more powerful than you. And that proves that might is right. And what matters the most is whatever we achieve in this life of status. That's the basic conversation between the two of them. What does Allah give us? Allah gives us the very basic dialogue. First, he describes what Allah gave the man with the two gardens. Then he describes how that person, the disbeliever, bragged and boasted to his brother about how much wealthier he is and how much more manpower he is. And then Allah Ta'ala describes his actions. He says in the next verse, وَدَخَلَ جَنَّتَهُ وَهُوَ ظَالِمٌ لِنَفْسِهِ قَالَ مَا أَظُنُّ أَن تَبِيدَ هَذِهِ أَبَدًا وَمَا أَظُنُّ السَّاعَةَ قَائِمَةً وَلَئِنْ رُدِدْتُ إِلَى رَبِّي لَأَجِدَنَّ خَيْرًا مِنْهَا مُنْقَلَبًا And he entered his garden wronging himself. He said, I do not think this will ever perish. And I do not think the hour is coming. And even if I am returned to my Lord, I will find something better than this in return. In return. So there's some subtleties here. Go back to the beginning of the story. What does Allah say he gave this man? Two gardens. What do you notice here? He entered his Jannah, one. Why does Allah mention it as two gardens in the beginning, but one garden here? This is a very uh, subtle change from the dual to the singular. And the scholars of Tafsir mention various interpretations for this. One, they say that it was like one large garden, 
It just consisted of two sections. So from one perspective, perhaps an internal perspective from someone inside looking at it, they would see two gardens. But on the outside, it's so large, you would refer to it as one garden, right? That's one perspective. The other perspective, and this is mentioned by Imam al-Razi, he says that by Jannah, here, he doesn't mean the two gardens. It actually, because Allah Ta'ala is telling this story. He's not quoting the man. Allah says that he entered his Jannah, meaning his Jannah on earth. All he's going to get, this is the only Jannah he gets, is his Jannah in dunya, and he has no Jannah in the hereafter. So in that sense, it's like saying he's entering his heaven on earth, all that he's going to get with no share of Jannah in the hereafter. Imam Razi mentions this. He says, Al-Muradu annahu laysa lahu jannatun wala nasibun fil jannati lati wu'id al-muttaqoon al-mu'minun wa hadha ladhi malakahu fil dunya huwa jannatuhu la ghayr. Basically what I just said, that this is all he gets. And he doesn't get what the believers receive. So it's his Jannah on earth as opposed to what he would receive in the hereafter were he a believer. Now, this interpretation actually hinges on something really important, a question. When we go to the beginning of the story and read all the way through the end, we wonder, between the two brothers, did this brother who owns the garden, did he actually become a believer at the end of the story? Or did he remain stubborn in his kufr? That's the question. And the scholars of tafsir differ about that. Some say at the end he repented and he had remorse. Others say no. He didn't repent from his kufr, and his only remorse was the consequences of his actions. You know, he was just remorseful over what he lost in the world, not over anything else. So to say that he entered his jannah, all that he gets in, in this life, that would only work if we say that he died on kufr and did not uh, embrace iman. If we say that he came to Iman, then he's a believer, and he's bound to enter Jannah, and he gets more than the Jannah in this, in this world. So Allah says that he entered this garden in a particular state. The wow here is known as wow al-hal, the wow designating the state of the person when they do an action, right? You can use this wow in, in Arabic when you want to describe the state you were in when you did something, right? I could say, right? I entered the masjid in a state of laughing while I was laughing. You could say, the different ways. So here Allah is saying that He entered the jan- His garden in a particular state. What is that state? He was wronging Himself. 
So he entered the garden in a state of wronging himself because he was exposing himself to the anger and chastisement of Allah due to his kufr and ingratitude. So what did his kufr actually entail? The kufr of this man consisted of two things. And we see this in the story in the next verse. It consists of his belief that these material causes, these asbab, are the true doer, denying that Allah is the creator of the effects in conjunction with the causes. This should all harken back to the aqidah class. We talked about cause and effect, and Allah Ta'ala being musabbibul asbab, and how things do not have independent efficacy, and that Allah Ta'ala creates the effect in conjunction with the cause. So water quenches thirst. Allah does not create quenching by means of water, needing water as a tool. He creates the quenching in conjunction with us drinking the water. Like that's the theological aspect. So this man believed that it's all, it's all on him, right? He's the one who made the money. He's the one who made the investment. Allah has nothing to do with it at all. So that's the disbelief. Number, the first part. The second disbelief is his denial of life after death. And he combined these two forms of disbelief in two expressions, two statements. And both of these statements use the word dhan. And dhan we mentioned is conjecture. It's like guesswork. Right? When we talked about knowledge and its counterfeits or the things that masquerade as knowledge we mentioned ilm number one but then the counterfeits are what shek wahm von and so on so this is one allah quotes him as he entered the garden in this hal the state of wronging himself due to his ingratitude قَالَ مَا أَظُنُّ أَن تَبِيدَ هَذِهِ أَبَدًا وَمَا أَظُنُّ السَّاعَةَ قَائِمَةً وَلَئِنْ رُدِدْتُ إِلَىٰ رَبِّي لَأَجِدَنَّ خَيْرًا مِنْهَا مُنْقَلَبًا That's what he said. I do not think this will ever perish. And I do not think the hour is coming. And even if I'm returned to my Lord, I will find something better than this in return. So he's thinking that the material wealth and riches would last forever. It's always going to be like this. And he believes that there is no resurrection after death. That after you die, that's all there is. And he says, well, even if there was, I still have it made in the hereafter too because I have it made now. So that's the attitude. Now this actually leads us to some questions. You know, we read the Qur'an... We read these stories, and we often reflect on them on a very surface level. But we should ask questions about the meanings of these verses. You know, a part of reflecting on the Qur'an is to ask questions. And we understand that asking questions is not asking, uh, you know, because when people ask questions, they ask because they want to know and go deeper. They're not asking because they doubt. They just want to know, well, 
why does Allah say this and why not this? So if you think about it, this man, obviously he's lived his life. He's seen people, they come and go. He's seen people with wealth who have money and they die. He must know from experience, the universal human experience, that people are born and they get old and they die. It's inconceivable that he thought he was going to literally live forever. Obviously, he knows he's going to die. So why would he say, I don't think that any of this is ever going to perish? Does he really think that it's going to last forever or there's something else at play here? The likeliest interpretation is that he's thinking that his riches and wealth will not perish as long as he's alive. He basically believes he has it made and he's going to be rich for the rest of his days. Right? Do you think someone like Jeff Bezos thinks that he's going to become poor? Do you think he worries about his bills? No, he doesn't think like that. Right? Anyone with that kind of money, they don't necessarily think they're going to live forever, but they don't think that they're going to fall on hard times at any point in the rest of their lives. So that's the basic attitude he had. I don't think any of this will ever perish. I mean, I'm never going to become broke again. I got it made. So he then applied that to the hereafter. So first, he doesn't believe in the hereafter. And he says, I don't think the last hour will occur. But as, you know, if it did, I think I'll still have it made. That's the attitude. He believes that because he has lots of power and lots of wealth, he is a special and privileged person. And although he doubted the last day, he believed that even if it was a possibility, that power and privilege will extend into the hereafter as well. He thinks, look at all that I have. I'm deserving of honor in this abode, so I must deserve honor in the next, right? This is the person who thinks that because they're honored in this region, that people have to respect them in another region, right? That's in dunya, you know? A person in this part of the world may not know that person. Why would they just automatically give them respect? So this person thinks that even if there was a hereafter, all of my power and prestige will transfer and I'll be honored there like I'm honored now. Because I'm only honored here because I'm a good person. I'm only wealthy because I'm a good person and therefore I should have it made in the hereafter too. So what you find in this dialogue is the man with the gardens is suffering from four delusions, four delusions. And we call this ghurur, four delusions. Delusion number one is the belief that having wealth is a proof that Allah is pleased with you. Believing that by having it, Allah is automatically pleased with you. Now, if a person is given wealth, and Allah inspires them to be circumspect, to ascertain the permissibility of the source of their wealth, 
and Allah inspires them to be diligent in paying zakat and giving charity and diligent to make sure the money is earned lawfully and used lawfully, then that wealth they receive can become a means of blessings and increase in closeness to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The ulama say that one of the forms of dhikr for the wealthy is them thinking about their money in terms of where it's coming from and how it's coming and making sure that it's spent properly and zakat is paid on it. Just them thinking about those finances is a form of dhikr. So if a person receives money and they're applying it this, then yes, it could be a means of closeness to Allah Ta'ala. But money is not an intrinsic indication that a person is uh, a good person or that Allah is pleased with them. But he suffered from that delusion. The second delusion is his belief that wealth is from one's independent efforts. And of course, we do live in a world of cause and effect and you, you tend to get out of the dunya what you put into it. So that is true. However, it's not from your independent efforts. Allah facilitates. And Allah has decreed the risk that comes into our life. So one of the cures to that delusion is to simply remember our origins and also remember who is the real doer, who gave us the tawfiq, who facilitated the means, who opened closed doors that made it possible for us to get this job or that job or this means of income or that means. So although we work hard, there are still doors that have to be opened and there's energy to be expended that we have to receive all of it is purely the creation of Allah, right? So remembering that is the solution to that delusion. And that's what his brother is reminding him of. The brother in the dialogue is basically reminding him of his origins. That's the part we'll see in the response of the brother. He responds to the delusion by saying, look where you come from, right? That's the second delusion. The third delusion is the delusion of permanence. That's delusion number two, isn't it? Uh, delusion number three, uh, the belief that you have independent power, right? The person, this is a corollary to the second one. Uh, this is the person who believes that they can do whatever they want and it's all in their hands. They look at what they have and they think it's all mine. My efforts, my money, mine, mine, mine. And it's all from me, right? That's a delusion. And the poor believer is also teaching him the, the cure to this delusion. The last delusion is the delusion of permanence. The idea that these things will always remain. The poor believer is teaching him about this delusion too. Telling him that Allah can very easily switch our roles where you have absolutely nothing. So don't think that these things are permanent. A person has high status in this life. Allah has opened doors of great wealth. They should never think that it's always going to be that way. It could change in an instant. And that's what the brother reminds him of. So after mentioning the disbelieving brother and what he said, Allah then mentions the response of the believing brother. He says, قَالَ لَهُ صَاحِبُهُ oh, We read that already. 
no, this is the next verse. قال له صاحبه وهو يحاوره أكفرت بالذي خلقك من تراب ثم من نطفة ثم سواك رجلا لكنه الله ربي ولا أشرك بربي أحدا. His companion, his sahib, said to him, as he conversed with him. Here the translation says, "Are you being ungrateful to him?" I prefer this being translated as, are you disbelieving? Because kufr can mean ingratitude, it could also mean disbelief. Are you disbelieving in he who created you from dust, then from a sperm drop, then evolved you into a man? But as for me, he is Allah, my Lord, and I never associate with my Lord anyone. So we see straight out of the gate, the brother, what does he do? What is, what's the first thing he's saying here? He basically says that you're a kafir. <laughs> That's what he says. You're a kafir. So he says you're a kafir. And this is a proof, by the way, Imam Razi mentions this, this is a proof that anyone who denies life after death is straight out kafir, right? He just said it right then and there. Do you disbelieve in the one who created you from dust? So after putting forth that question, he also uses this rhetorical argument. And this rhetorical, not rhetorical, this rational argument, I should say, a rational argument from the Qur'an. Basically, he's saying that just as Allah who created you Ex nihilo, meaning from nothing. Just as he created you from nothing, he can also recreate you after your death. He did not just create you as a non-sentient being. He created you with intelligence. He fashioned you. He shaped you. He formed you. ثُمَّ سَوَّاكَ رَجُلًا He formed you into a rajul. A rajul, a man. And this means that he's saying that Allah gave you intelligence, he gave you rationality, he gave you strength. By saying rajul, means a person who's developed. They're developed, so they have intelligence. They have rationality. Why don't they apply them? Why don't they think about their origins? Think about these things. Stop being so irrational and blinded by the material wealth, making you think that this will all last forever and that you must be honored in the hereafter because you're honored with money here. So he's saying, by, by saying that Allah formed you into a man, he's pointing to the fact that his brother is intelligent. His brother has rationality, the ability to think and reason. He's not a rock. He's not uh, a non-sentient being. He's a man. He can think for himself and come to these conclusions. And because you're a man, because you have this intelligence and rationality as a fully developed human being, you're also mukallaf. You're also charged with moral responsibility to believe in your creator and believe in the hereafter and to do the right thing. So that's his first response. He basically challenges him and puts forth this rational argument. And then he contrasts 
the state of his brother with his own state. So he's talking about the brother, and then after that he switches to a description of himself. And he says, as for me, he is Allah, my Lord, and I never associate anyone with my Lord. In the tafsir works, you find a really beautiful passage that describes the state of this brother. They take this response and they elaborate on it and the kind of ideas that are implicit within it. They say that it's as if the believing brother is telling his disbelieving brother, I see poverty and wealth as both from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So I praise Allah when he gives me and I'm patient when he withholds from me. I'm not going to be arrogant when I'm blessed and I'm not going to be spiteful or resentful when I'm tested. That's, the, that's within that response. That's implicit. Now notice what the brother says in his response. As for me, he is Allah, my Lord, and I never associate anyone with my Lord. I never associate anyone with my Lord. Do we find anywhere in the story so far where the disbelieving brother is worshiping an idol? Is there any mention of shirk? No, all we have, the kufr that's explicit, is him believing that these things are independent of Allah and disbelieving in the hereafter. So these two are kufr. There's no mention of him worshiping an idol or believing in uh, other deities besides Allah and so on and so forth. So why does the brother say this? I don't associate any partners with my Lord. Does that mean that his brother was a mushrik? Well, like always, what do you think we're going to say now? The scholars of tafsir differ over that. They, they debate whether or not the brother was a mushrik, looking at the available narrations. So some say that, yes, he was a mushrik, but not because he was worshipping idols per se, but because he was deluded by his money and power as if he set up a partner with Allah in Allah giving power and honor. Like these things give honor like Allah gives honor and power. So it's a partner. The money and the power became kind of like a co-equal in this this man's mind and heart. And that would be shirk. Others say that he might have been a mushrik, an actual idol worshiper, but it's not mentioned here. And then Imam al-Razi concludes by saying, by denying, by this man denying that Allah can bring the dead back to life, he is making Allah equal to creation because creation cannot bring the dead back to life. So that's a form of shirk. If when a person says that Allah Ta'ala cannot bring the dead back to life, they are essentially saying Allah is like creation who are also unable to do that. So shirk is not just in the act of devotion to an idol or someone or something that one worships, it's also shirk in partnership by giving Allah the qualities of human beings, one of which is their inability to bring the dead back to life. That's what Imam al-Razi says. It's not 
explicitly clear from the verse. Even if I am. Yeah. He's kind of hedging his bets, you know. You know I don't, he says, I don't believe it. I don't think. Even if, in the remote possibility that happened, even then I'm good. That was actually the belief of some Quraysh too. Like we know that we know that Quraysh by and large rejected belief in the last day. But it doesn't mean that all of them were so adamant in that stance. Some of them hedged their bets and they would say, uh, if there's a day of judgment, I will pray to this idol and sacrifice to that one so they can help me out, you know, if that day exists. And so again, the parallel between this man as, a, as an individual and the collective state of Quraysh and their attitudes towards the Prophet ﷺ. You see these things parallel nicely. Now, one of the beauties of the Quran is that you can break down the verses and you can look at their linguistic and their rhetorical and theological principles, but you can also just look at the very simple message that's being delivered. Then this is a very simple response from the believing brother to the disbelieving brother. Right? He basically responds with this astonishment and amazement, saying, do you really deny the one who created you from nothing and then fashioned you from dust, then from dust to a sperm drop, and then fashioned you as a man? How in the world can you deny the existence of the one who was the source of all of your wealth, who gave you all of these blessings, who gave you all of the strength and the ability to earn these things, who brought you into existence? So after denouncing him and challenging him and describing his own state, the believing brother then tells him what he should have been saying instead. So the idea is that you don't just condemn, you model or teach what they should do as well. So he says, as Allah mentions in the next set of verses, وَلَوْلَا إِذْ دَخَلْتَ جَنَّتَكَ قُلْتَ مَا شَاءَ اللَّهُ لَا قُوَّةَ إِلَّا بِاللَّهِ إِن تَرَنِي أَنَا أَقَلَّ مِنْكَ مَالًا وَوَلَدًا فَعَسَى رَبِّي أَنْ يُؤْتِيَنِي خَيْرًا مِنْ جَنَّتِكَ وَيُرْسِلَ عَلَيْهَا حُسْبَانًا مِنَ السَّمَاءِ فَتُصْبِحَ صَعِيدًا زَلَقًا أَوْ يُصْبِحَ مَاؤُهَا غَوْرًا فَلَنْ تَسْتَطِيعَ لَهُ طَلَبًا So in the first part, when you entered your garden, why didn't you say, مَا شَاءَ اللَّهِ لَا قُوَّةَ إِلَّا بِاللَّهِ As Allah wills, there is no power except through Allah. Why didn't you say that? Although you see me inferior to you in wealth and children, perhaps my Lord will give me something better than your garden and release upon it, your garden, thunderbolts from the sky so it becomes barren waste or its water will sink into the ground and you will be unable to draw it. So basically he's saying instead of being arrogant, you should just ascribe all of your blessings to Allah Ta'ala. Right? Like that's the ultimate ethos of the Muslim in daily life. 
how many times is the Muslim saying things that reflect this ethos? MashaAllah, InshaAllah, La hawla wa la quwata illa billah, Qaddarallahu wa masha fa'al, Inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi raji'oon. Right? So many of the phrases that we say as Muslims are uh, reflecting this reality of all matters belonging to Allah and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, being the source of all good. So this statement, Allah, la quwata illa billah, it's recorded by Ibn Kathir that some of the early Muslims in the first few generations would frequently say this, Allah, la quwata illa billah, when they would see something amazing or nice in their own life or in the life of others. And it is a way of averting the ayn, the evil eye, by saying, MashaAllah, la quwata illa billah. So this is two phrases, MashaAllah, and then, la quwata illa billah. You combine the two, taken from this verse, it's a remedy against the evil eye. And you say it for the things in your life as well as what you see from others. That was a practice of the Sadaf. So he mentions this. And he says, perhaps my Lord will give me something better than your garden. So it's like he's saying, you may see me as inferior to you in wealth and children, but Allah may give me better in this life and the next, and maybe he'll strip you of what you have. And that's exactly what happened. He didn't say Allah is going to strip you of these things because this is ta'alli ala Allah. And we don't play God by saying, you know, Allah is going to deal with you in this way and that way. And no, it's a possibility, right? There's multiple possibilities with this man. He could come to his senses and keep everything, but as a believer. Or he could lose it gradually and never come to his senses. Or he could lose it all and then come to his senses. Or keep it and never come to his senses. It just fattens him up at, you know, and it's a cause of greater punishment. Or he could lose it all and not come to his senses. So many possibilities, but what happened? The chapter, the story tells us that it came true, exactly what the brother said. Allah sent down this type of punishment by way of a storm that completely destroyed all of the wealth and the belongings. And that was from the heavens. And then from the earth, the other punishment was in the water, basically dissipating that river flowing through the garden, dissipating, sinking deep into the earth where it can no longer be retrieved and used to irrigate his crops. So it's a punishment from the sama and a punishment from the ard, right? You know, in the cosmology of human beings, you have heaven, man, earth, right? So we stand on the earth. So here's the earth beneath our feet. We're standing on it, and above us is the heaven. He receives a punishment from on, on high and from below, and it wipes out everything. So Allah mentions this. فَأَصْبَحَ يُقَلِّبُ كَفَّيْهِ عَلَى مَا أَنْفَقَ فِيهَا 
وهي خاوية على عروشها ويقول يا ليتني لم أشرك بربي أحدا and ruined closed in on his crops so he began wringing his hands over what he had, had invested in it as it lay fallen upon its trellises and he was saying I wish I had never associated anyone with my Lord so there's a couple of points here there was well when did this take place says this was the morning time so we get the impression that after the discourse he went back home he wasn't listening to what his brother said he comes back the next morning to gaze upon his glorious gardens in the morning and he sees that they're destroyed so Allah says the, this ihata, which means that he wasn't just looking at it from the edges or peeking from the side. He was actually closed in inside of it looking around. So ihata means, you know, encompassed or closed in. So he goes inside and he sees it's all ruined. It's all destroyed. And he begins to wring his hands out of grief and remorse as it lay fallen upon its trellises. What does that mean? If you go back to the beginning of the story, what does it mention? What does he have? A'nab, right? Uh, grapes. Tre- you know what a trellis is. These wooden things that used to hold the grapes up and spread them out. So the fact that the end of the story mentions these trellises tells us he had a lot of grapes. And he, they, they had just fallen on the trellises. And after seeing all of this, he says, Ya laytani lam ushrik bi rabbi ahada. I wish I had never associated anyone with my Lord. Now, the chapter, or the story rather, concludes by mentioning that all protection comes from Allah, all power belongs to Allah, all support belongs to Allah, and His is the best reward, and He stores for us what is better and what is everlasting. Allah Ta'ala says, وَلَمْ تَكُنْ لَهُ فِئَةٌ يَنْصُرُونَهُ مِن دُونِ اللَّهِ وَمَا كَانَ مُنْتَصِرًا He had no faction to help him besides Allah. And he was helpless. So this brings us back to that question. Did he become a believer after all was said and done? Or did he remain as a disbeliever? It's not entirely clear. From the previous verse, we might get the impression that he had remorse for his shirk and his kufr. Because he says, Ya laytani, lam ushuk bi rabbi ahada. I wish I didn't. That's an expression of remorse. We get the impression that he was remorseful for the kufr and the shirk he was guilty of and that he came to iman only after everything was destroyed and taken away from him. However, if you say that he was remorseful and came to iman, how do you explain the next verse? 
where Allah says he had no faction to help him besides Allah and he was helpless. If he came to Iman, then that punishment was actually the greatest thing that could have happened to him. Right? Without that punishment, he might have remained in his disbelief. So if we say he came to Iman, then that punishment and the destruction of his garden was actually a great ni'mah. How many times has a person been blessed through a calamity that turns their life around? And were it not for that calamity, that painful experience, they would have continued along a wrong path. But they only recognize that in hindsight, right? So if he came to Iman after this punishment, that punishment was actually a great blessing and it caused him to wake up. And if we say that that's what happened to him, Allah is saying that nevertheless, his children and his wealth were no match for Allah. Like there's no undoing this. Even if you're remorseful, what's done is done. You face the consequences of it, learn from it and move forward. That's one way of looking at it. So we could say, yes, he was remorseful and he came to Iman and the punishment was a blessing in disguise, as we say. But there's no undoing this. Just because you have Iman now doesn't mean it's going to necessarily appear overnight the way it was before. You have to build now from the ground up, but on a foundation of Iman. That, okay, now if I reinvest money and I work to this and that, I do it through the correct perspective, not the old perspective. And that's if we say he died, if he had remorse and came to Iman. Um, not everyone agreed with that. Some said that he remained on disbelief stubbornly. And they say that he remained a disbeliever because this verse uh, is pointing to the fact that his regret over taking partners with Allah was based on his belief that if he was not a mushrik, he could have kept the garden. This is one interpretation. They say he's remorseful, like, oh, if only I wasn't a mushrik, I could have kept the garden. So his, his, his only concern is the garden. It's like saying, if I didn't worship other than Allah, I would have kept the garden. What's more important to him, truth, his creator, or the garden? you get the impression that the garden is of primary importance to him. That's according to those who say that he remained on kufr. He was only interested in what would preserve his garden. Uh, so this so-called remorse was not really accepted. But I believe the most likely view is he did experience genuine remorse and he repented of his kufr and shirk and came to iman and was remorseful. So Allah concludes this story by saying, That is because authority belongs to Allah, the true. He is best in rewarding and best in requiting. So the story of the young men in the cave was a story of how the young men dealt with the fitna to one's deen. They fled to the cave to save their deen. This story tells us about the fitna of wealth. Right? So 
There's four fitan described in Surah Al-Kahf, and we know that this is a chapter intimately tied with the experiences of the last day, and Akhirul Zaman, and the Dajjal, and so on. So that, a lot of that centers on fitna and how we respond to fitna. The fitna to, to Iman in the story of the young men in the cave. And this is the story of the fitna of mal, of wealth. One of the most consuming and powerful diseases of the heart is hubbud dunya, love of the dunya. And the Prophet ﷺ tells us that hubbud dunya ra'su kulli khati'ah, o kamaqal. Love of the lower world is the origin of every sin. In another narration, the Prophet ﷺ says that the dunya is sweet and green, and Allah makes you generations succeeding one another so that He may try you with respect to your actions. A Muslim will generally be safeguarded from associating partners with Allah. But a Muslim is not safeguarded from falling prey to the fitna of dunya and, and man. So a person may be safeguarded from fitna to their deen, but that's not a guarantee that they won't be uh, subject to fitna in matters of wealth. And if they're safe from that, there's no guarantee they will be safe from the fitna to the, the next fitna we'll be learning about in the story of Musa and Khidr, which is that of knowledge. And then after that comes the fitna of power and authority. So we'll touch all of those insha'Allah. Wa sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam.